Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's podcast, we turn to Revelation chapter 5. As we mentioned last time, in Revelation chapter 4, we've entered really the central part of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation focuses upon God sitting on a, on a throne in chapter 4. And in, in chapter 5, he has in his right hand a book which is open. We mentioned last time that Revelation 21 and 22, the throne of God, which is in heaven in the chapters 4 and 5, comes down out of heaven from, uh, from heaven to the earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And the question of Revelation now is going to be, what is needed, what's necessary, so that the throne of God, which is in heaven, will come down to the earth? And the ultimate answer becomes the redemption of creation, the redemption of humanity. The restoration of God's presence upon the earth is predicated upon the nations uh, repenting, the nations coming to know Christ, coming to know uh, the Lamb. So, I remember when I was younger, I used to think that Revelation 4 and 5 were simply uh, irrelevant and, and just peripheral information, that the real good stuff began in chapter 6 with the breaking of the seven seals. But now I've begun to realize that uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is central to the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, God's presented as the Creator. In chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, now God's presented as the Redeemer. In chapter 4, the one sitting on the throne uh, receives worship. In chapter 5, the one sitting on the throne and the Lamb receive worship. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 begins, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a book, written on the inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it, or, look, or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The Father has a, a book in his right hand. Uh, again, the parallels between Ezekiel chapters 1, 2, and 3 are uh, very significant. There's a scroll in the right hand of the Father, known as Ezekiel 2, 8 through 3, 3, which will bring that passage up to, uh, for conversation when we get to Revelation chapter 10. In both cases, there's writing on both sides of the book. The writing on both sides of the scroll or the book uh, represents the comprehensiveness of its contents. And it's sealed closed with seven seals. Uh, it connotes that the uh, contents are concealed, as the book of Daniel says, until the end of time. Daniel chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 4 and 9 says this, uh, But as for you, Daniel, and remember, this is the last chapter in the book of Daniel. This is the closing of, the, of Daniel. But as for you, Daniel 12, verse 4 says, Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Daniel then begins to go, My Lord, you know, how long? You know, what's going to happen? And the angel tells Daniel in verse 9, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Now, sealing means that the contents cannot be known until the seals are broken and the scroll is unrolled. Some have suggested that as Jesus begins to break the, scroll, the seals in chapter 6, that after he breaks each one, something happens on the earth. 
and that he's beginning to read the scroll. There's no way that the scroll could be read uh, or its contents until after all seven of the seals are broken. Now, the scroll is in the right hand of the Father who sits on the throne. Uh, the right hand, of course, is the, is the source of God's power. By my mighty right hand, uh, he rescues the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, because the scroll is in the right hand of the Father, which is often represented as the hand of deliverance or judgment, it appears that the scroll is related to God's plan of salvation and justice. Uh, one uh, commentator, uh, Farmer, says that commentators generally agree that the sealed scroll represents the redemptive plan by which God's purpose will be achieved. Uh, Balcom uh, contends, It is a reasonable conclusion that the content of the scroll which the one who sits on the throne holds in his right hand is his secret purpose for establishing his kingdom on, on the earth. The scroll represents the, the sovereign will of God, then. Maybe it might be referred to as the book of life, referred later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, the questions, then, are asked, like, you know, who's worthy to open the scroll, to identify an individual who might serve as God's messenger, or in this case, as God's, uh, 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 the one who's able to, to take the scroll and to open it. It'd be intolerable, if you think about it, if John didn't even tell us what was on the scroll. As we proceed, of course, we're going to find out what the content of the scroll is. John says he began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the book. Verse 5, Revelation 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. John begins to weep at one of the elders. We met the elders in the previous chapter. Began, told him to stop weeping. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book. Now, the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring Genesis 49, verse 9, and the root of David, represent, uh, representing Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 10. These are two very common Old Testament texts uh, that were used by the Jews for, this, for the idea of messianic hope. The lion and the root of David uh, certainly is a reference to the Messiah. Uh, he's going to be this warrior prince who will conquer the enemies of Israel. Uh, the Messiah will be a, a new David who wins a military victory over, over the enemies of Israel. The, the lion suggests ferocity and the strongly contrasting uh, with, with, of course, with the lamb. And, of course, he has overcome. This might be the most significant occurrence of the word overcome. Uh, verse 5 again, Stop weeping, behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So it's to open the book and its seven seals. Well, we noted back in chapter 3 that the word overcome is used in each one of the seven letters to the seven churches. To the one who overcomes, I'll give this, and I'll give this, and I'll give this. And that the seventh occurrence in Revelation 3.21 says, To the one who overcomes, I'll grant for him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Uh, our overcoming is to be modeled on the overcoming of Jesus. And we asked ourselves the question, well, well, how is it that Jesus overcome? In what manner did he overcome? After all, if we overcome as I overcome, overcame, we can sit down with him on his throne. And now we find out that the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. So it's to open the book and its seven seals. We find out, of course, that the overcoming of Christ is actually going to be through his death. Verse 6 says, And I saw... Between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb, standing as if slain. There it is. John's going to commonly do this uh, a number of times in the book of Revelation. He's going to hear one thing, but see something else. Uh, he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet in chapter 1, but when he turned, he saw one like a son of man. Now John heard that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome, but when he turns and looks, he sees a lamb 
standing as a slain. You can imagine John turning to see the lion, this, this conquering lion, this victorious, powerful, kingly uh, creature. But instead he sees a lamb standing as if slain. Now, of course, the reference to as if slain doesn't mean that he actually wasn't slain. It just looked like he was. It's just as John way of saying it looks like this lamb was slain. We know, of course, biblically speaking, that the lamb is a reference to Christ and that Jesus is indeed the lamb that was slain. So John hears one thing but sees another. Uh, it's often the case then that what John sees interprets what John hears. Now, of course, he was slain. He doesn't see a messianic conqueror, in other words. He doesn't see this lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David as the Israelites were expecting this ferocious military conquering Messiah. Instead, he sees a slain, a slain lamb. One commentator, uh, G.B. Carrot, says, Whenever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah or the overthrow of the enemies of God, we are to remember that the gospel recognizes no other way of achieving these ends than the way of the cross. Craig Keener says, Here the central paradox of Revelation and of the Christian faith in general comes to the fore. Jesus conquered, not by force, but by death. Not by violence, but by martyrdom. By means of this imagery, then, John is telling us that the suffering, redemptive, persuasive love of God is the most powerful force in the universe. The Lamb is said to have seven horns and seven eyes. We ref already referenced the idea that seven represents perfection or totality or uh, completion, fulfillment. Horns has a Jewish background, of course, of a conquering messianic lamb. It's a symbol of power in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, and the Psalms, and seven of them represents fullness. The seven eyes are representing the seven spirits of God, going back to Zechariah chapter 4, uh, associated with God's uh, all-seeingness. The lamb sees everything. Thus, he's able to see everything, and he has the power to act upon it. He has seven horns and seven eyes. His seven horns maybe then represent perfect power, and his seven eyes represent perfect wisdom. It symbolizes his power of victory. The seven eyes, were said, are sent out into all the earth to make his victory known. This, of course, is going to be the means through which the throne of God in heaven comes down to the earth because the prophetic power of Christ and the prophetic witness to the world is going to be the means through which the nations are redeemed. Verse 8, uh, it says, I'm sorry, verse 7, He came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Verse 8 says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked as the Lamb, uh, and I heard the voice of many angels, excuse me. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped. The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders are before the Lamb, and they each have harps, and they're singing a new song. Now, a new song in the Old Testament always expresses a song of praise to God for victory over their enemies. The lamb has become victorious over his enemies, but note again, not by being the lion, but by being the lamb. Not by being a conquering, powerful Messiah 
as the Israelites were expecting, but by being a suffering, loving, submissive lamb. You are worthy because you were slain. It answers the question in the beginning of the chapter, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In verse 2, and John looked and he found no one who was worthy until he saw the lamb. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Verse 12 says, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy are you, verse 9, because you were slain. And verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now, it says that they purchased men from every nation. And remember, I referenced last time that the, the number four, when things are occurring in, in fours, in quartets, it often references the, the created realm. Uh, there were four living creatures. Uh, and now we see uh, the, the fourfold reference to humanity. And this will be common. Commonly, uh, references to humanity will, will take place with, with, with four different descriptions. Uh, you purchase uh, uh, with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This, this fourfold reference then indicates people from all the nations of the world, which again is the, the goal of, of, of the biblical story. The question at hand is, how is God's throne going to come from heaven down to, the, down, uh, down to the new creation, to the new heavens and the new earth? And the answer is, once the nations are redeemed. Well, how are the nations going to be redeemed? Well, first thing we find is that they've been purchased for God with your blood. Now, the reference to purchasing indicates language of the slave market. And it's the idea of paying the price for a redeemed slave. Uh, the, the price, is, indeed, was the blood of the Lamb. And you've made them, it says in verse 10, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Again, as we noted earlier, this is Exodus language. This is language of God's call upon Israel. I've made you a, a holy people, a, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may declare his excellencies. This was the call of Israel. And now that call for Israel is being fulfilled by the purchasing of men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They're the redeemed, but they're redeemed in order to be a witness to all the nations. They're a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, the translation, they will reign upon the earth, is a little bit interesting. The Greek text, actually, is, un is unclear uh, whether or not it refers to a present tense or a future tense. They will reign, or they reign. Uh, it perhaps is actually easier to explain why a scribe might have changed something that was already in, uh, uh, in the, uh, already in the present into a future more than it would be easier to explain why something that's in the future will be changed to a present. If that's the case, then perhaps the best reading of this text is it says that we are a kingdom, or they have made us so that they are uh, reigning upon the earth. Uh, either way, uh, verse uh, uh, 11 then begins to say that angels and uh, myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now, this is an important thing about numbers as well. We looked at the fact that numbers have a symbolic meaning to them in the book of Revelation. That doesn't mean that there isn't a literal meaning as well. For example, there really are seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that refer to seven actual, literal, historical churches. But the number seven symbolizes the, the, the totality, the completion, the, the fullness. Of, these seven churches represent all of Christendom. The fact that the letters are written to all the uh, those who have ears and the, all the churches indicates, of course, that they weren't just for just these seven churches, but these seven were representative of, of all of Christendom. Now we have an example of a number in the book of Revelation that's often confusing. Uh, uh, we're going to see later on in chapter 9 references uh, that some translation will say 200 million. Well, if we look carefully at the book of Revelation, at the Greek text, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, uh, it's, uh, the, the Greek text says that the number of them was myriads of myriads uh, and thousands of thousands. Uh, um, the word myriads is the word in Greek that often means 10,000, but the key with the word myriad is that it's almost always in the plural. 
So really it would be translated as ten thousands of ten thousands, or perhaps ten thousands times ten thousands. The fact that the word is plural means it's undefined how many ten thousands that it is. And as a result, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to take this number as a literal referent, to have an actual number. So you'll see that many of the translations say myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The ESV, the New American Standard, uh, and the Net Bible, uh, um, and the ESV and the New American Standard. The Net Bible says 10,000 times 10,000. The problem with that, of course, is that the word 10,000 is in the plural. So it's not 10,000 times 10,000. It's 10,000s times 10,000s or 10,000s of 10,000s. Now, the second word, uh, or the third and fourth words that occur here, uh, is the word thousands and uh, thousands of thousands. Now, the word thousand is often a reference to a, the highest countable number in the Greek world. In other words, the word 10,000 is often in the plural, uh, as it is here, though the word thousand is in the plural as well uh, in this passage. But oftentimes the word thousand might be an actual number, like 144,000. Uh, but the word t- for 10,000 is almost always in the plural, signifying what we might say is millions of millions or perhaps billions of billions. It's a large, vast, uncountable number or, or, or some significant number. This is important then. Uh, the, the, the first time it occurs uh, in this particular passage, it's myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. It's this vast, massive, perhaps one might even say uncountable number or incalculable number of angel of angelic creatures. And every creature in verse 13, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The very worship that was given to the Father in chapter 4 is now given to the Lamb in chapter 5 because it's the Lamb who was worthy to take the scroll. Now, what does this mean for us? And I think this is an important time to pause in our study of the book of Revelation. We've seen already that the book of Revelation is a story that's unfolding. The story that's unfolding we're learning about now is the story of how God's going to redeem his creation, how he's going to restore humanity, how his will is going to be done is perhaps the contents of the scroll. Um, how are the nations going to be restored back to God's presence? And we already have a clue. We already have a good indication, and that is, well, they were purchased by the Lamb, by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's death on the cross is then the decisive event that influences all of history. It's very significant for our understanding the Bible and the biblical text from Genesis to Revelation to understand that all this centers on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you could add, of course, if you want, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is the central moment of human history. Now, the next thing to note, by the way, that is if the seven seals are awaiting to be opened by Christ, uh, some who suggest that the seven seals are going to be opened by Christ at some future date. And when he opens them at some future date, perhaps beginning the last three and a half years of human history, uh, all these events will start to transpire. But the question becomes simple, and that is this. If Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain, then why is he waiting? The only reason why the scroll wasn't open before this point in time was because no one was worthy to open it. But now that the lamb has been slain and he's worthy to open it, then of course it makes sense that he's going to open it. There should indeed be no delay. The meaning then, the significance of then is that the events in the book of Revelation begin once the lamb was slain. Remember, the book of Daniel says its its contents were going to be sealed up and concealed until the end of time. John's then telling us now in the book of Revelation that the end time has begun. It's begun with the crucifixion of Jesus, with his death, with his resurrection, and with the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
the events have begun to be fulfilled. Now, it's also important to note that the lion represents military deliverance, but the lamb represents sacrificial deliverance. Revelation portrays the messianic conqueror not as a lamb, uh, not as a lion, but as a lamb. This means we might want to reevaluate our understanding of power. Power is being redefined by Jesus as faithful, loving, sacrificial witness. This counterintuitive battle, one commentator says, is victory through, victory through suffering and apparent defeat, is the main theme of the apocalypse and a pattern that faithful Christians are to follow. Michael Gorman says that human beings, even apparently faithful Christians, are too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universe with power, preferably on their own terms, and with force when necessary. Such a concept of God and of, the so and of sovereignty induces its inheritance to side with this kind of God in an execution of allegedly divine might in the quest for an allegedly divine justice. Gorman goes on to add, Understanding the reality of the Lamb as Lord, and thus of Lamb power, terminates, or should terminate, all such perceptions of divine power and justice, and of their erroneous human corollaries. We find this notion throughout the scriptures, and we shouldn't be surprised that it appears here in the book of Revelation. But Jesus told his disciples that he was making them kings. But he told the disciples, but you are not going to rule like the nations do. The nations lorded over those in authority, but not so among you. Let the first among you be the last, and the last shall be first. One other commentator says, The Lamb reinterprets Old Testament allusions to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. At the same time, the Lion reinterprets the counterintuitive way the Lamb conquers forging a new symbol of conquest in this world. Again, we cannot underscore the fact that the way that the lion has become the lamb, the way that Jesus has overcome, is indeed the same way that we are called to overcome. I'll argue in a few chapters when we get to chapter 11 that this is the main theme of the book of Revelation. The means by which God brings the restoration of the nations into his presence is not by divine wrath, but by divine love. And that divine love is exemplified and the sacrificial, faithful, loving witness of God's people. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.